Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Scrubbed In Show. Before we kick it all off, just want to shout out our new platform, Peer. Peer is a platform that allows us to share our knowledge through quizzes, to learn, to grow an audience, and to earn a passive income. Whether it's medicine, healthcare, or something outside of it all, whether it be design, coding, or finance, everyone is a learner and educator. Check it out at www.peer.io to get involved in the future of social learning. Let's kick off season three now. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This season is expected to be even bigger, even better, and we have an amazing bunch of guests with us. Today, one of the very few guests to start the season off is Will Gow, who is a medical doctor who trained at University College London where he co-founded Sovera, a health tech company. One of the cool things about Will is the fact that he managed to raise venture capital while studying medicine, and is also one of the youngest appointed clinical NHS entrepreneurs. It's a massive pleasure having you on the show today, Will. How are you, bro? Yeah, doing okay. Thanks for having me on. I know you've done, you know, you've, you're doing super cool things. You know, you're the co-founder of a health tech startup that's kind of being proactive in the way it's doing its things. But as is the usual scrubbed in standard, I want you to take us all the way back to the very beginning, buddy. You know, a young Will who all of a sudden decides he wants to do medicine and kind of starts from there and take us to kind of present day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The play, the playbook. Uh, so I, uh, you know, my, my, my parents came from China. Uh, they, they kind of came to the UK in the early 90s. Um, Neither of them were very academic themselves. They were sort of hustlers by the true definition, you know, left school when they were like 15. And they came, you know, it's a very similar story to loads of people, right? They came here for a better better life and, and all that sort of stuff. So they did the classic Oriental thing and they set up a restaurant, um, <laughs> you know, in South London. And uh, as, as, as young as I can remember, I mean, I was helping out in the restaurant, you know, as a waiter. Um, you know, I started off doing the dishes you know, it was a bit, probably a bit of child labor at that point, but you know, whatever, <laughs> we'll let that slide. But you know, you have to help out where you can. And as soon as I got old enough, I'd, I'd start waitering and taking orders and stuff. So that was like kind of 13, 14. And I think uh, probably similar to a lot of people listening to this is that you, you definitely get a sense of uh, respect for your parents for what they do for you, but also this desire to want to help out. Um, and when you're young, it's very hard to provide for them financially, right? You're, you're too young mm. to do so. So you kind of please them and and i think especially in oriental culture it's like you know doing well in school you know they love their bragging rights they like going to the, all the aunties and uncles and being like oh my son's doing this and that so that was one way in which i could sort of give back to them was to just you know work hard in school and, and they really pushed education mm. as something that was really important mm. um and that was the kind of the catalyst really they wanted some social mobility they knew that they weren't going to be able to teach me the stuff they were like you need to go to a good school so um very very lucky i was in um brought up and raised sort of in south london in sutton near croydon hmm. and uh we had some really good sort of grammar schools that were about they were all sort of selective schools that you don't have to pay for but um i remember getting into one of the ones there called wilson's and it's like the happiest day of my parents life because they knew <laughs> that they knew that i was on a better path at that point because it was hmm. you, you kind of get wrapped up into a better system um 
And I, when I was in school, I kind of like, I didn't really have any strong desire to be one thing or another. I wasn't like the sort to say, you know, like, I'm, I didn't want to be a surgeon at any point in time. <laughs> I didn't, I kind of I knew roughly what I was good at. I was, I was kind of good at maths. I was kind of good at the sciences. <laughs> wasn't great at the Englishes or the arts and stuff. So I always knew that the sciences where I was going to go down. Um, and then it was my dad really, who was like, oh, you have to be a doctor. We've never had a doctor in a family. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so prestigious. It's so safe. Um, he's had instability his whole life and he just wanted some stability yeah. for me. And so, mm. well, you'd be doctor was kind of like everything yeah. I heard growing up. And I was like, okay, um, I, I don't have any qualms about it. I'll, I'll give it a go. So, um, mm. I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of breezing over how hard it was, but I mean, when you have no connections, I'm sure you guys have mm. the same thing, right? Mm. The application process wasn't just exams. Exams was just like the tiny bit of it. That was the bit yeah. that you had control over. The rest yeah. of it was like the inter work experience. So I remember the first um, ever work experience I got was a, a, a customer came to the restaurant and he was eating and I overheard them talking about something to do with the hospital. Okay. And I asked him, I was like, oh, uh, I, I, I want to be a, a, a medic one day can I please intern or do work experience? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, here's my email and stuff. I end up doing like this random pathology placement, which still went oh, on my personal yeah. statement, but I guess that's sort of the mentality, right? Back in the day, anything, any opportunity you kind of just throw yourself into. So um, very fortunate. I ended up applying for UCL um, and got accepted onto there. And, and that's kind of like the, the initial phase. No, definitely. Amazing. Did you write off the bill? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Gave, gave, gave an extra drink, mate. Gave an extra drink. <laughs> All right. So, um, so we kind of resonate with what you said in terms of our parents are kind of products of instability, coming over to this country for a better life mm -hmm. for themselves, you know, and their kids, and kind of being a doctor, lawyer, and all of this kind of is you know is is a stable career path. Tell us about kind of getting into med school, the UCL experience um and kind of tell us about your year in medical school um kind of some of the obstacles you faced you know and how you overcame them and some of your proudest achievements while in med school yeah wow i mean it was it's quite surreal i mean i i wanted to go to nottingham actually that was my <laughs> uh main main desire it seemed like it had a really good party life there um but then ucl was calling and i i also just got some really good advice from you know, people older than me to say, you know, if you can go to a UCL, there's lots of opportunities there. And at the time, mm. I didn't really understand what that meant. But quickly, yeah. when I started, I realized that the people I met there and also the opportunities there were plentiful and, and kind of, and I'll expand on that, which is, you know, I think university, for probably it doesn't matter where you study, but medicine is quite a slog. You know, yeah. you have a set, you know, everyone ends up on passport at some point anyway. But in the early days, it's just like you just have a lot of content you have to devour. And it's more of a test of memory than anything else. Right. And so you Absolutely. do naturally get a little bit itchy and you want to you want to try some new things. And the the tech scene was really strong uh, in, mm, in London. Yeah. Um, so let me think. So I started in 2013. The first ever conference I went to, which probably sparked it all off for me, was like in 2014, and it was a it was a talk. It was called Smartphones versus Stethoscopes, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there were some really great uh, sort of doctors who turned into sort of medical innovators and did loads of tech stuff. And I just thought my mind is blown because you don't really even see that as a path 
ever yeah. you know you, you 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 hear the stats right it's like everyone wants to start off being a surgeon or a neurosurgeon yeah. and then everyone ends up becoming a gp <laughs> but there wasn't anyone who said to me be an innovator right and one mm. of the things yeah. that really stuck with me was there was a quote which was you know you know, we call it medical practice and practice is by definition repeating the same activity over and over yeah. again. Whereas innovation yeah. is where you just take what is the norm and change it. And that's mm. why medicine is such a sort of restrained kind of archaic system. We always practice what we know, whereas we don't push the boundaries. And mm. I think, um, yeah, I, I certainly just kind of uh, embraced that scene and got involved in as much as possible, um, literally as anything I could, you know, just... Um, going to all the events, volunteering at events, helping hand out, you know, flyers mm. and stuff, just 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 to be part of these communities and meet people. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of where where the interest took off. How did you feel about that? Because in an environment like medicine, right, everyone is pretty much into the books, always attending anything that's academic. So when you start to veer off of that sort of that road that goes only one way, how did you feel? when all of your buddies around you were doing something else. Yeah, that's, oh, I mean, I could go for, for hours on this one because it's it's such a personal thing, isn't it? Like mm. you feel you feel a little bit weird. Um, people question why you're going to these events. Um, yeah. I think for me, it was like, it's just like this gut gut instinct, like your, 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 your natural compass and you have to listen to it. And, you know, without getting too spiritual or anything like that, I think for me, mm. there was definitely a thing of, knowing certain things weren't right for me so spending times in hospitals and stuff like that i wasn't inspired by mm. the people mm. who were 20 years ahead of me and i'm thinking to myself yeah. if i if i don't want to be that person in 20 years um why am i here yeah. right and don't get me wrong it's not easy to be a consultant it's not okay. easy to get that training pathway in london and be a top mm. dog it's like it's equally hard Absolutely. um you know and it's more competitive, you know, it, it's so for me, I was like, I just, if I can't see the purpose of that role or where I'm going in that direction, then is that worth the slog? Because it's not the easy route either. It really isn't. Mm. So um, I think it came to a head and I think, you know, I'm going to go on a little bit of a um, uh, sort of explaining sort of my personal life a bit, but I think mm. it's worth worth doing, which is uh, in second year, it was the day before my exams. And I, I found out about a family health issue and that was a massive turning point. So um, I, I found out that my mum had uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, and it was just a day before my sort of SBA exam. So like the multiple choice exam, written exam. And I remember just like trying to compose myself and trying to sit this exam and just thinking, what the what the hell is going on right like how do you even how do you even cope with that so yeah. I, th I thankfully passed that year i think sh through sheer sort of like you're in that mode anyway and then from that point onwards i think a lot of things changed in my mindset which is she um my mum was someone who always believed in sort of doing what you like and doing things that makes you happy and she could see that medicine wasn't bringing me a lot of happiness um, and I think I definitely appreciate that, especially with something like cancer. Um, you know, for those who's listening, who families have been through it, it's weird because it's like you have this kind of existential crisis of you know it's not going to last forever, and then suddenly yeah. time becomes so precious, and you see it mm. in a completely different way. It's like I knew I only had a year, two maybe max with her at the time, um, and so I remember during, during third year, 
which is when I did my BSc in physiology, I was just going back home, taking her to the Royal Marsden to, to like to get all of her chemo treatments. Yeah. She couldn't she couldn't work anymore because the chemo treatment was like messing her up, and so I was having to like wait her. Uh, my, my dad was working as the chef. So it was just the two of us running this business, so I was still trying to study back at UCL, and that was the probably some of the hardest years of my life because it was like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, you just you just you, you just realize the um, uh, the reality. It's like life hits you hard, and I think for me mm-hmm. that was a really really defining moment because. Um, I managed to actually do all right in the BSc year. Weirdly, it was one of my most successful academic years ever. I don't know how uh, I, I managed to, you know, get a first class and win some awards for some research. I think it was more just sheer kind of drive to want. Like I said at the beginning, I wanted to do my parents proud, and it's like if there was anything I could do, it was like to make her, hmm. her proud. And um, anyway, the reason why I think it relates to the question as you asked me about decision making is she, she eventually mm. passed away when I was in fourth year so this was in 20, 2017 yeah. and I took I, I took a year out at that point like six months before she passed away I said to said to the dean I was like I, I don't want to I don't want to be revising when I could be spending time with my mum right this is this is a no-brainer Who, who's going to care mm. if I'm a year behind or you know a year out like it doesn't really matter mm. and then during fourth and fifth clinical year uh, I think my closest friends would say when they saw me was that was when I was at my the rock bottom because mm-hmm. mental health was at this point uh, uh, at its all time worst because you know you've yeah. just lost a parent all your mm. friends have gone on and done a, a year, year above now right so you're kind of out of that loop a little bit mm. um, and I was like I don't I don't really want to continue doing medicine at this point I wasn't enjoying the clinical medicine as much as I had hoped for mm. and I also knew that. I would be doing a disservice to my mum if I just continued plowing on doing stuff I didn't, she knew I didn't want to do. And I was like, mm. and again, going to that point, I was like, time is too precious. I, I know I'm still young, but still it's mm. like, it is time in your life and you, you don't get it back. So I uh, sort of in fifth year decided quite confidently that it was going to be a different path completely. Mm. What it looked like, I still wasn't sure because, you know, things weren't clear, but in my heart, I knew that it was going to be something else that was going to at least um, resonate with what I wanted and it fit with my internal compass. And I think that was kind of mm. the, the major factors that helped me make my decision. No, oh, amazing. I think that's an amazing legacy of your mother to pass on to, to us and to our listeners to make the decision that makes us happy because it speaks volumes because of the successes that you've had now to where you are right now and I think she'd be incredibly proud and happy um, and it's a legacy that's that that I'll be definitely looking to hold tight as well so um, definitely definitely amazing absolutely amazing I um, you know we can only respect what you've said and thank you for sharing that I hope it does encourage and motivate a few other people um, we've had people kind of apply to med school whose parents have passed away so we kind of appreciate how difficult it is. Um, I like the fact that you stuck to your internal compass, kind of understanding what your life calling is. I think a lot of medics kind of get sucked into this tunnel and always think it gets better towards the end and kind of do this whole graft. Mm-hmm. Only to later realise before it's too late, like, oh, do you know what? I really should have stuck to my guns. I should have done what makes me happy. Tell us about Sovera. At what point did that come into your life? Um, do you think it's something that kind of uplifted your mood, kind of 
kind of reignited that passion that creativity you had mm. yeah yeah i think you touched on such interesting things i think um we started so ivan and i started it in 2016 so believe it or not this was the time when my mum was you know at, at her worst and it was just more yeah. of an an outlet to like you said an uplifting thing it was exciting it was different it was uh i I wasn't sure where it was going to lead all these things were exciting and gave me a reason to keep going for it whereas i feel like the 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 nhs treadmill is one that i could Mm. totally respect by the way it's like it's Mm. there for a reason for that stability but it just wasn't quite right for me so suvera was really a an expression of wanting to do something different and just giving it a go and just realizing that if it doesn't work it doesn't work right who's gonna it doesn't matter it, it really in the grand scheme of all these things if you start something that doesn't work it really doesn't matter so we we, we started it and mm. um and i have to say a lot of respect to ivan as well for sticking with me during those hard years because there was times where i was like ah, i'm not gonna be able, i'm not gonna be very helpful right now because i'm mm. grieving and all these sort of stuff so mm. we stuck by each other and i think uh we're glad we did because we're in a better place now we're stronger and i think there's a level of trust there between us that it's just so fundamental for any relationship, whether it be a romantic relationship or a business mm. relationship. You just need trust, uh, no. uh, and you just know the other person has your back, and then you can go out and do, and solve some hard problems rather than internal conflicts. So that's what we did. Definitely, tell us. So I think it'd be interesting to know. Tell us what Cervera is now, yeah. where you are now, just briefly, without kind of mm-hmm. sharing all the details, and then take it back to when you had the idea of Sovera, kind of finding a co-founder and the kind of the pivots up into present day? Yeah, 100%. So um, we started off uh, by joining an accelerator program. It was called Kickstart London. It was started by my friend uh, Raghav. Uh, it was like a mixture of different universities, UCL, Imperial, Kings, LSE. And it was to bring together multiple disciplines of people to start you know, interesting ideas. So. Uh, I remember Ivan was like, Will, come on, let's go join this one. We can just start something. And the initial idea was to solve <laughs> the problem of medication adherence. So whilst yeah. we were at med school, we were like, people don't take their meds. Um, how do we solve this? Maybe we create an app, which is what you know, what you tend to think about because that's what you know. And so that's what we tried to do. We spent many, many years trying to build an app with no coding experience and trying to get mm. people to to come and support us. And it taught us a lot, actually, because the the thing I've learned and I'd pass on to any people listening out there is everyone starts off with this idea of what they want to do, which is good. You should have an idea because that shows that you're thinking outside a box and you're not being told what's best, right? Every, everything you see around us was created by something that people know smarter than ourselves, right? So you have to think what you can add to the world, but don't get attached to the to the solution or your product. Because that idea is always going to change. That solution is always going to change because actually the thing you should be focusing on is what's the problem out there uh, mm. and listening to the people you're solving the problem for and they'll tell you what they want. And so your job is to just stick with the the mission, the vision of saying, I'm going to solve this problem, but don't get obsessed with your product because you're only mm. going to you know, get upset when someone says, I hate that feature or mm. this is never going to work because old people who are on medications don't use an app. You know, mm. it, it hurts, but it's the truth. <laughs> and so you can't, you can't stay too fixed, fixed on it. So we changed what we did over the years. Um, and the reason why we actually managed to get the leg up, I kind of kind of think of it in phases, right? The first phase is just 
having a co-founder or having a mate working on a side hustle because that's all it is it's a side hustle it's something that mm. you you know you, you do in your spare time and we only found traction when we spoke to customers properly and we found out who could be potential payers to this and who mm. could be you know long-term um you know people we could develop relationships with and we spoke to some gps and they were like well actually you have a really cool tool because you're able to collect information from patients but that's not actually the information i need i don't need their mm. medication adherence because they lie all the time anyway what i would rather have is that maybe you could collect some interesting you know physiological markers so maybe the hypertension mm. that would be really helpful yeah. for me because we have so many follow-up appointments where they just come in and then we just say your, your, your blood pressure is fine and that's a wasted appointment that could be for someone else and if they just sent me the yeah. blood pressure readings via your app we wouldn't have had to have it so yeah. you see how i mean it kind of like yeah. it was like okay we'll pivot so then we became a, a remote monitoring tool and that's where we managed to raise our round of funding um, which was sort of uh, in 2020 we raised our first pre-seed round um, and that was the idea and now fast forward a year from that pre-seed round we've pivoted again to become mm. a you know a full stack uh, virtual clinic because we realized that purely doing software in 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 the nhs in primary care wasn't the best route because actually gps have loads of tools and tech and everyone's trying mm. to make them more efficient but actually mm. the problem is there's not enough capacity in the system and actually we need to we need to have more clinicians come in and we need to train them up and use give yeah. them the tools to be able to be more efficient and so we now provide a full stack solution to managing hypertension so we have our own clinicians etc so it's amazing you can see how things have changed over time because we weren't attached to the initial idea we were just attached mm. actually there's a big problem here which is that long-term conditions or medications weren't managed well and, and that's how it led us to where we are today definitely I, I love that because uh there's an there's a that importance of not being attached to the product protects you from failure i feel i feel a lot of people will start side hustles and because they're in love with it when they see that it's not sort of gained traction it's just a case of all right it's failed let's just pack our bags up and and leave but the but being able to pivot without because you're not attached to it i think that's what brings about success eventually eventually you just have to keep sort of swiveling until you find the right point um so i think for our listener that's a very very important point if you haven't found traction look towards pivoting look towards adjustment speaking to your customers um, it's absolutely yeah. amazing, amazing advice. Yeah, I think what, one thing I would add as well to this is like, if you're someone who's listening, who's maybe got an idea, wants to create something, the, the sole thing you should be focusing on is this idea called product market fit, which is mm -hmm. what a lot of the sort of tech world, and it's like, like the Silicon Valley um, group of people really have tried to make, it, make building a company a science. They've tried to yeah. like unpack it and trying mm. to like build framework so we can work around it. And I think there's a lot of truth in it and there's a lot of luck and stuff that you can, cannot control. There's just so many variables, but there are some that you can control and that's focusing where your, your efforts are. Mm. And, and product market fit is one of those things where you don't have a business until someone is willing to pay for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's such a simple thing, but it's like, it's, it's so hard to achieve that. And that's the whole goal of your your initial phase anyway, as, a, as an entrepreneur or as a co-founder mm. is to, to figure that out. And that's what you're essentially being funded to do. You know, these, mm. these rounds of funding, the reason why there's so many rounds of it is because mm. they want to get you to a next proof point. It's like if you, if you were to invest your money today 
you would want to know, okay, so this business here, it doesn't matter what it is, are they making any money? Are there, are there any customers? If there's no mm. customers, it's like, okay, then do I back the people who are trying to find the solution? And that's why mm -hmm. the earlier the stage, the more it's just down to you, the founders, and down to the market you're operating in and how yeah. well you can sell that vision. <laughs> um, and then the later the stage, the more it's like, okay, they've raised this much money and they've got these many customers. And then the proof points become there and you do risk the business. And therefore, the later the investors come in, the less, I guess, upside they get, right, in terms of yeah, proportion. Of so the, the earlier the bets, the more you make. So it kind of makes sense. So if you if you look at it from, if you were an investor, how would you feel about a company? It's a really good way to judge what you should be focusing on uh, when mm. you're building your own. No. T tell us a little bit about your, about the journey to fundraising. You make it sound so easy uh, to our listeners. It is such an incredibly difficult task and Will Gowen is co-founder. I've done an amazing job in securing funding. Tell us about the process of it. Uh, what was the challenges? Uh, were there loads of no's in the way? Uh, tell us the whole, give us the whole, an, an idea of what it was all like. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're, you're literally shooting in the dark to begin with. And I think um, I, I have to say that, uh, you know, it was definitely very hard. And Ivan, he was really, really good on this as well, because he was able to kind of pull on his network a lot. And in the mm. early days, it's like, no one believes in you. You don't even believe in yourself. So why should anyone else believe in you? you know what I mean, it's like, if you ask me, would you put in a hundred pound? It's like, oh, I don't know. This could, this could go anywhere. Um, and so it, a lot of it in the early days is about uh, refining how you sell the product. And so you become mm -hmm. a salesman by the end of it. And I don't mean it in a Wolf of Wall Street way where it's like dodgy dealer kind of thing. But it's like, it's like you, you have to sell something that doesn't yet exist in a world. And mm -hmm. so being able to articulate where you think the market is heading uh, and why you have a unique advantage in this space. Or not even unique advantage, but why you feel like it's appropriate that you could be the ones to do it. That's all you really yeah. have. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you create some nice pitch decks, which have some lovely numbers on it, which says, oh, this is the total market size. If we did this, yeah. we did this. Here are our competitors. And, you know, we, we split the first round of funding half between sort of individual investors called angel investors who are sort of mm. people who have gone and done it themselves or have a ton of money and they want to back you mm. and then the other half of the money we raised from sort of institutional investors so venture capitalists um, mm. and they're slightly different in the way they approach things because they're a little bit less uh, I would say <laughs> they're a little bit less about um, just doing it for the sake of trying to promote the I don't know the community or doing it out of the paying it forward kind of thing, which is what angel investors mm. usually have that yeah. kind of feeling of, ah, oh, if someone helped me, I'll help them. They're more in it for, it's, it's a business for them, right? They have of their course. own investment they have to return money to. So they're just, a, you're, you're just a an investment vehicle. A vehicle. Whether we're Suvera, mm. whether you're another company, we're another company, whether you're in tech, you're in health or financial tech, you're just another thing that returns a mm. fund to someone else. So mm. it, we, we raise from both and I would say you should do both because uh, it's hard to raise enough from just individual people unless you've got some mad yeah. connections then definitely exploit that but if you don't have the mad connections then um for those listening out there as well the institutional investment is very favorable in the uk because there's lots mm. of uh, uh regulatory tax breaks for people so something you should look mm. into is like seis like i can share mm. stuff in the to, to, to the team afterwards but it's kind of like ways in which people um, can de-risk themselves from investing in your company. So you should really tap into all the perks you can in the early days. Mm. Um, and 
you know, and then it's just a case of going out and speaking with as many people who have money as possible. Like there was literally, we had a hit list on our Excel spreadsheets of people who just had money, uh, whether or not they were in, whether or not they were in healthcare or not. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. we, should, we, we should speak to them. I was going to say, it's just kind of holding you since we're talking about fundraising. So there's the whole concept of smart money, right? It's, do you take money from an investor that can help you not only if, from a financial capital point of view but you know their connections are they in the same sphere do they understanding you do they believe you or is it for them to kind of exit in five to ten years make a quick buck what is so you mentioned kind of you had a hit list despite them being in healthcare or not what is your opinion on kind of angel investors that are there for a quick buck or maybe not necessarily understanding what Silvera is doing or any other venture yeah I think you're always going to get a mix of like um, particularly in the early round when you're just raising from loads of it. So I think we had about maybe eight or 10 people on the on the total investment cap table. Mm-hmm. And obviously some have been kind of hands off, which is fine. <laughs> but then there are others who are, who are uh, you know, ex-founders who have exited companies themselves, who've got cool. tons of connections, have seen it all before and can just point you in a direction and say, look, watch out for this barrier mm-hmm. or focus more on this. And they're, they're so helpful because... They've got skin in the game now, right? With their own yeah. money. But more than anything, they just wanna I think there's almost like they wanna live through you because they, <laughs> yeah. they like the excitement of it. They also can help. Like they actually have yeah, a of lot course. of knowledge and it's like they just wanna get involved and see where they can help. And if they get a return at the end of it, then that's a bonus. Yeah, but course. more than anything, they just wanna figure out these tough problems and it's like testing your assumption and seeing if it works and then it's like you, and a couple of months later you've pivoted, cool, did that work? Oh, it did work, the market did resonate. And I think they just get a buzz off that as well. So yeah. you definitely want people who, who know the game uh, are in your space, mm. but it's hard to just raise a huge amount of money from people if, if it's, you know, they can't all be like that. No. Yeah, definitely. Massive congratulations to kind of securing investment, kind of growing Silvera while being a medic. Yeah. Um, so we kind of chat briefly offline. Um, so you decided to kind of go full time into Silvera having graduated from UCL, um, tell us kind of the rationale, the logistics to that. Um, I know you've touched upon it before. And I think what's interesting for our listeners is tell us about your average week. You know, what do you get up to? It's as a medic, it's like, I wonder what those guys are up to. You know, if I leave, you know, training or I want to do my own startup as an entrepreneur, or what does my week look like? So I think that's always quite interesting for the, you know, for the people that have no insight to your life, to your world. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think the first thing to say is like, don't underestimate your ability as a, as a medic. Uh, we mm-hmm. are so used to being thrown into a new environment, new hospital rotation, new specialty. And it's like, crack on it, mm-hmm. it, Here's the cheese and onion, go learn that. And then just go mm-hmm. and pretend like, you know what you're doing. Uh, it's very similar to what I've experienced so far. I, I don't know if I can speak for all founders, but this the whole thing of learning new stuff and pretending like you know what you're doing is like the mm-hmm. core of it all. So uh, I, I definitely wouldn't um, underestimate your ability to just learn like that. That's one thing that we, we as medics have been, we, we've learned how to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the decision making to go full time, it was like I said, part of it was, um, like I said, influenced by that sort of following my gut and all that sort of stuff. I think that was a very strong uh very strong push the other part half of it was kind of the investors wanted to see us full-time as well especially yeah. because ivan was also a met, uh, you know studying it was very difficult to justify raising uh private money but also 
you know, you have to then run the team as well, right? Because we, we, we're, we're non-engineering people. We need to hire engineers. You need to be there with them. And there was just yeah. so much to figure out. And for me, it was like, uh, you know, what, what one kind of um, principle I, I use a lot and I think would be helpful for listeners and, and yourselves as well is taking calculated bets. It's like everything in life is a gamble to some extent. Mm. Um, the, the rewards for some of the most high-risk gambles is the highest and for good reason yeah. because it's the highest risk. The, the lowest gambles are usually ones that pay out the least. Yeah. So you have, but you have to take calculated risk, right? You don't want to go hard and just take out all of your family money and then just put it all into one thing and go bankrupt because that's a bad yeah. risk because the downside was too much. So you want to take calculated risk. And for me, I was like, you know, we could raise this financial uh, money to, to support us in this endeavor. Um, the downside, if it doesn't go well, is, oh, I'll then apply for F1 the next year. Mm. Yeah. But the upside is... We could continue on. I could continue learning, and I could go into mm. adjacent avenues. And so, for me, the calculated risk was: this is very high. I, I could, I could get a lot of upside from this. I can also, more than anything, my mental health will be a lot better because I'm enjoying what I'm doing. It excites mm. me. So that was like a, a really key thing. I always, even in, in like what we're doing today in Suvera, when we think about strategy, what's the calculated probability mm. of the upside versus the downside? You have limited resources, limited time, limited whatever. Is this going to give me the upside of what I want? So that's a that's a heuristic that I, I use quite often. In terms of day-to-day weeks, I think you 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 transition into a, a bit of a salesperson quickly if you're a non-technical person, which is which is fine because you have someone has to be doing it. You have to sell to investors, you have to sell to mm. future hires because they need to believe in your vision to want to join a, yeah. a three-person startup because you know they have mm-hmm. loads of job offers. Why would they join you, right? So yeah sell that and then you have to sell to your customers once you've built the product you have to be like well buy mm. this please uh, give us some money um mm. and so you constantly are iterating and i think your my main job at the moment um is figuring out what the market wants so that product market fit is like what does the market want what are they happy yeah. to pay for do we have mm. the resources to do it um and how do we go about thinking strategically about these fundraisings in order to build this in a way where we hit certain milestones to unlock the next round yeah. of funding and then yeah. knowing when yeah. to hire. And it's like understanding this game because it is a bit of a game and like you're yeah. constantly learning it. Um, and so a week, that this is what I mean, like the weeks are so so varied. So I, looking at my calendar this week, it's like half the time might be spent, you know, ideating with a team and thinking about strategy mm. and actually like uh, figuring out which features of the product are more important. And then the other half is speaking with, customers i.e gps and saying if we built this would this be useful to you or would this just be like rubbing our egos like what's Mm. actually helpful and then trying to trying to uh like articulate what they're saying because they don't always just give it to you on a plate because if it was that easy everyone would be doing it but you have to kind of draw out what was the root of his problem or her problem like Mm. am i hearing enough of the same thing from enough people and then with that, mm. great, I know roughly where I'm going. And then you have to take a bet on this is what I'm going to try to solve. So it's a bit of a bit of a minefield. <laughs> Definitely. Amazing. Just touching on that, and I think it is a bit topical. It's you're in health tech software. Um, a lot of issues and barriers kind of a lot of entrepreneurs face is the resistance of introducing kind of these type of solutions to the NHS, to the clinical world, especially in the UK. How has your experience been with that? And I'm sure you probably know the problems I'm talking about of, you know, the, the red tape around the NHS, does it exist, does it not exist? Is it all about connections? Tell us about that, kind of bringing that yeah. into market. 
Yeah, I think I think it's if you if you take a step back and look at which industries have been kind of revolutionized the most, it's the ones with the lowest stakes to begin with, right? Mm. It's like the direct to consumer stuff that is just kind of entertainment. There's no real downside to it. Rightly mm. so, the hardest financial regulatory ones, legal ones, healthcare ones, they've got so many barriers because we need to protect uh, the patients and we need to protect mm. the safety of it. And so, yes, there is a lot of barriers. Are they all necessary? No. But are some of them necessary? Yes, because you don't want to have mm-hmm. loads of rogue players. Yeah, of course. So in, in that sense, that's why raising money is important. So kind of when we were talking off air about bootstrapping versus fundraising, you kind of have to look at what business you're building, right? Because for us, we're building something that uh, holds real patient data, really interacts with patients. We have clinicians that are actually managing patients. Our mm. T's and C's have to be on point <laughs> because it's like, like a hundred page document. Well, it, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you have to, you have to, you have to be respectful of why it's so important, right? You, you people yeah. don't put things out for no reason, you know, whether or not it's slow, that's a different question. That's down to the people running those systems. Uh, which is this is a different point entirely but in terms of do you need data protection do you need clinical safety do you need absolutely you absolutely do need it um, <clears throat> which is why we raise money because you know you can't even sell a product before you even got these things in place so that already True. takes an amount of months so we'd be bankrupt before we started if we didn't have that money <laughs> yeah. right which is why you have those people who Fair raise enough. money to build these hard things <clears throat> um, I think on the whole though I think the NHS, I mean, you look at different healthcare industries. So obviously I talked about healthcare as a whole, but if you look at Mm. other markets where they're not a public sector driven service like the US, they have a lot more innovative products because actually they're more private. They're more, uh, they're more competitive. So Mm. they want to, they want to win patients. (laughs) Whereas there's more of a, like a birthright here, like family practices, they just get given patients because they're in the local region. Mm. Um, So there's less competition. And we saw a little bit of spice when Babylon came in came yeah. in the mix and then they started grabbing sort of patients off off uh nhs list so there was a new kind of uh, uh i guess player in the market so i think that kind of scared a lot of nhs people to be a bit more mindful that it might not always be forever this way and that they have to be a bit more innovative um definitely yeah i, I want to ask a question so on this journey of entrepreneurship what three emotions would come to mind if you had to say it quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think the first one is resilience. I think you just mm-hmm. need to, I think resilience and also uh, uh, stubbornness, I think, because, <laughs> because you, 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 everyone wants to be resilient, but to be stubborn feeds into resilience because you just ignore what people say. I think you, you, <laughs> yeah. you I, I think when I think about what kind of Ivan and I as our personalities, I think, I'm definitely someone who's a bit more calculated. I kind of think a little bit more about the realities of stuff where he has this like unbelievable stubbornness to stuff, which I think is so great in the early days because everyone is telling you no. And then it's just like, I still think we can do it. It's like, well, you must be (laughs) stupid. You must be (laughs) stupid to think we should still keep going. But it's like that stubbornness. So resilience and stubbornness. And I I think the third emotion is just like, Ah, oh, it, it, it's like one of excitement because even in the days where it's the worst thing ever, at least it's like I made that decision, <laughs> and it's like yeah, at least yeah. I know that tomorrow could be a better day. And, in, and honestly, there's nothing quite like the buzz of opportunity that is untapped. Yeah, no, of course. Right, where it's like for you guys, you know, your podcast or whatever you go on to do next could 
be something that actually puts a stamp in the world, could help the next generation yeah. of medics, could do this. That if, man, yeah. like you can feed off that and you I have know. to like remember those feelings. And then when the days are really looking tough, everyone's saying no, it's like, oh, it's looking a bit resilience and stubbornness. And then don't forget the excitement, which is, hmm. oh, but if this lands, you know, this could be huge. And I think that excitement is what, what brings you through. Definitely. I think, yeah, we've resonated with you. You know, we're about to launch a platform soon and the likelihood of failure is high as is with every startup, right? But that if, that hope of we might be able to change something, we might be able to leave our stamp a legacy, mm. that's what kind of keeps you going. I think that kind of brings us on to the next point is how do you deal with kind of, you know, your mental health? Because I know it's something important um, and sometimes we get a bit of stick for it. Um, what does that mean for you? Because just the brief, you know, moments we've spoken to you, you've been through a lot, you've you've had your fair share. Tell us about that and what people can do to look after themselves. Oh, yeah, I think um, the, the, the short answer is if you can't look after yourself, you're no good to anyone. That was so true. Like when I was at my worst, I tried still, like I would try to attend stuff. I would try and, you know, use any last ounces of energy I had, but I just wasn't really helpful. And I realized that actually it's, it's you have to prioritize your mental health, your, your mental health. Mm. And I think, um, I think we're getting into a, a, a stage now where people are talking about it a lot more. I think, um, when I certainly went through my tough times of sort of my mum passing and all that sort of stuff, mm. I, I turned to some close friends. Uh, they were really helpful and, we ended up setting up a, a social enterprise off the back of it called Mindful Medic, um, mm. which was basically, uh, he, he was very into mindfulness as a practice. And I was sharing to him a bit about what I shared to you guys, which was I was talking mm. about how precious time is. And I was like, mm. every time I spend, spend time with my mom, I was like, I was just trying to live in the moment and trying to like capture all of the, the yeah. intimate details of her, her being there in the physical presence and sharing memories. And mm. I was like, that's what life is. You know, at the end of her, her, her life, she, she, all she was doing was sharing stories about the best moments that we had. Mm. It was just experiences. Mm. That was all there was. And then from that point onwards, I was like, when I was kind of discussing with my friend James, and he was saying to me what mindfulness was and the definition of mindfulness, paying attention to the present moment non-judgmentally. I was like, oh wow, that is exactly what I was trying to do. Uh, yeah. You know, it, in times of need, because my body was telling me to do that. But obviously, when you're not in a time of crisis. You don't just spend time thinking about the moment of you know how i'm speaking into the mic you kind of you're on autopilot a bit more but it's a really good reminder to live in the moment a bit more um and i think in terms of things that help so mindfulness is one of them i i, I sought help like I, I spoke to a therapist mm. um it was massively helpful speaking to, to someone else because it kind of you know you, you get open up to all the different um, things out there and i think just being open with your friends as well like, like i said i i was glad that people around me which is um, they had gone through their own challenges yeah. and just said, look, this is your time to go through some shit. So uh, don't worry yeah. about it. It's, it's uh, everyone has difficult times and I think we can all relate to it. So I don't hide it. I think, you know, I'm glad I shared it because we know the statistics for men and stuff. So yeah, let's not, let's not uh, pretend that it's not a real thing. It is, it's yeah. a, it, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, you know, it handicaps you. So talk about it and just, bear in mind that it does it does get better if you get the help and um and there's no shame in it and like you said if you want to be the most valuable thing because i think that was the thing that i had was oh, i'm not bringing any value to my friends mm. or my company you'll bring more when you're feeling better 
you know, no, you bring absolutely. more. So we so. definitely agree. I think thank you for being honest and kind of highlighting the fact that it is a real problem that does exist. And I'm sure there are lots of individuals out there that are thinking they're the only ones and, you know, an outlet speaking to people, having a good support network is very, very important. And it's nice for someone like you that have achieved so much kind of echoes that, um, I'm conscious of time and I know you're a super busy individual. Just before we wrap up, what advice would you give to individuals that are at that kind of fork moment? You know, do I do medicine? Do I do my startup? I'm which you're really passionate about that gives you true happiness. You know, just, just life in general, because I'm sure there are lots of people that have been in your shoes, are in your shoes now. What would you say to those people, Will? Yeah, I think... Uh, rather than going down a sort of motivational route because i think there's a lot no, of course. because that that's kind of that's kind of like something that is a temporary uplift but mm, mm. there's something as soon as that goes away it, you come back to the reality and i think the best advice i ever got given which i i love to share to people is um stop asking people for advice and start asking people for favors <laughs> and that, I love that, that. That, that one that one got me so hard because i kept going on to people who i massively admire and I'd mm. be like, what advice would you have for me? And they tell me the same stuff all the time. Follow your heart, persist, stubbornness. And they gave me the motivational pep talk. And then I realized when that guy told me, ask for favors, it turned to, great, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Would you mind if I shadowed you for a week? Or if I just actually mm. spent some time with you? And suddenly, it, it, you know, you'd learn so much from it and you've actually gone and tested it. And you've gone mm. and, you know, you're, you tested your own assumptions because all, all your sort of, uh, I guess, biases and when you get into decision fatigue when you're thinking i don't know what to do next i don't know what to do next you need to add more data to your machine yeah. to make the next decision <laughs> yeah. and the only way you're going to do that is not by more conversations it's just going in and seeing it for yourself and so that advice for me opened up so many doors in the long run um we've had people who have said this to ask for internships at suvera I, mm. obviously you have to i can't say that and then not you have to you accommodate. Know, yeah. but you know what i mean it's like once you once that was a big mindset shift because then it's like ask for favors and ask for you know actual things and and it will get you to that I next level that. And, yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tweet that as soon mm. as this finishes <laughs> I, I, I really i really love that and i'm gonna i think i'm gonna adopt that something similar i did akin to that is that with this new platform we're launching is that I've started to actively openly ask for help and I've found that very few people actually say no to helping me. Um, so you now telling me that means that I'm not going to be asking for advice ever again. It's just going to be, hey, can you help me with this, please? <laughs> Thank you so much, Will. <laughs> I think um, that's nice. I think I love your mindset. Um, we're, we're, we're probably similar ages um, and kind of the motivation of pep talks is only kind of a temporary uplift and you're very proactive in in your mindset, which then again is reflected in Suavero, right? You're very mm. proactive in the way you want to solve the problem. Um, it's been a massive pleasure speaking to you and to get to know you, Will. Um, we know you're going to be successful. Um, we wish you all the best in the future. Um, and if anything, we'd like to kind of dedicate this episode to your late mother. I know yeah. she'll be super proud of what you're doing. That's a kind of a small gesture from us. Yeah. Um, I think keep working hard and there's a lot of people I know and a lot of our listeners that are in similar situations probably going for a tough time or kind of you know trying to make sense of it all and I hope this episode resonates with them mm-hmm. kind of gives them a bit of insight um, but following your, your internal compass being happy at the end of the day is so key and looking after yourself your well-being so you can be of value to others and like you said you know if you're no good to yourself how can you be of any good to others 
Um, we've touched on so many amazing things, but yeah, thank you, Will, and thank you to all our listeners. Yeah, no, th- thank you guys. I, I, I absolutely love uh, what you guys are doing. I, I have ga- gained so much from podcasts, so thank you mm. for being that, that medium for people to, yeah. to, to educate themselves. So appreciate what you do.